Hello, and welcome to episode 28 of the Venture Games Podcast. I'm Chris Quaidu, and today I'm excited to be joined by Guha Bala, a gaming industry veteran with three decades of industry experience. Guha is the co-founder and president at Velen Studios, the studio behind Mario Kart Live Home Circuit and the breakout hit game, Knockout City. Before Velen, Guha co-founded Vicarious Visions while in high school. How's it going, Guha? That's going well, Chris. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thanks for joining me. So to get things started, you know, obviously you've been doing this for quite some time. So I'd love to just give you a chance to introduce yourself and give some background for those folks who are less familiar with you. Sure. You know, Chris, I started making games because, um, you know, I, I moved to, we share a, a common high school uh, in Rochester, New York, Brighton High School. And, you know, my brother and I, we moved there at the beginning of, you know, I was going to just start ninth grade and my brother Karthik was going to start 10th grade there. And we didn't know anybody in town because we just were totally new to it. And the summer before we started, we did a lot of creative projects together. We wrote comic books together. We made short films together, you know, things like that. And we said, okay, well, look, our computer is pretty old. Let's look up upgrade mm-hmm. it. So we're looking for different parts. And we met a guy. He quit his job at Kodak, which Eastman Kodak is based in Rochester or used to be based in Rochester. Mm-hmm. He quit his job there. And it was really a big deal because Kodak was sort of a uh, really amazing tech company at the time. And he started a company in his basement making sound cards for PCs. So we met him because we needed a sound card for our PC. Mm-hmm. He said, well, what do you guys like to do? And we listed off a bunch of random things, you know, this guy making uh, stuff in his basement all look very cool. We're completely oblivious to uh, what it meant. And he said, well, you like video games. Well, why don't you make one? Mm-hmm. So, we don't know how to make one. We don't know how to program. We don't know how to, there were no courses for that kind of thing. There were no right. college programs for gaming. It wasn't even recognized as a real job making uh, video games. This was 1998. So it was a couple of years ago. Hmm. So he said, we don't know how to do that. We're just kids. And he added as a book. It was uh, Turbo C from, uh, it was a Borland Turbo C with a CD in it and an Autodesk animator package, which was uh, then a cutting edge tool to do frame by frame keyframe animations. Mm-hmm. He had a scanner in his office and said, well, if you need to scan anything, you can come by and do this here. And he thought it would just be like a cool project for a couple of kids to do. He said, okay, so how hard can this be? He said, it's probably pretty easy to make video games, so let's just do that. You know, that would be our next creative project. You know, once you peel back the onion, what it takes to make it, and every step that it involves, it's amazing. It's so fascinating. Every Mm -hmm. part of the game development process, and we couldn't get enough of it. Even though whatever we did was totally wrong, and it took us forever to make the first game, too. We didn't know anything about anything. You know, no project management skills, no real structured formal art training. Or programming, we, we just started learning programming at the time. We put a computer together that could actually finally run the software that we needed to run, the yeah. animation animation tools. We borrowed a digital camera from our, it was actually a Kodak digital camera, ironically, the technology that put them out of business. Photographs around Rochester and made them into the background scenes for our first game. Realized that digitized photography wasn't the right way to do it. And then I, we, we used to work jobs at a local art gallery. You may know it, Memorial Art Gallery on University yep. Avenue. And we'd check coats there. We would just do coat checking. So we'd make a couple mm-hmm. bucks every two or three coats. And we saved it up. And then we started, you know, I did, I was our first art director, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And so I did all the drawings for our environments and objects and that kind of thing. And we would use the money that we would save 
checking codes to commission mm-hmm. art with a local artist. And, you know, Rochester really has had and has a thriving art community as well. Mm-hmm. And so we'd go to a mall nearby that was reconstructed into artist loft. And so started doing that. We would get some of the local actors at the Actors Guild in Rochester to mm-hmm. be characters in our game, in addition to whoever we could find. So, you know, my neighbor was a, had a role and, you know, a whole bunch of things, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, people, we had a couple of our high school buddies join us as well to start helping make this game as well. So that became, it became like an incredible obsession of ours mm-hmm. to do it because the actual making, the making process was so fun. Yeah. You know? So because every... Every time you take a step, there's a rewarding, you created something, you made something, but it also sort of unfolds and says, well, it doesn't quite work the way you anticipate and you have to do more. It was very different than, you know, let's say studying for a test or something. You study the material, take the test, you're kind of done with it, you move on to the next thing. And it's sort of like a very clean cut. You do well, and then you move on. Mm -hmm. There's no measurement of how how well you do when you do something creative. Yeah, There's no like big audience waiting to receive it or whatever, but it was fun to do it. And so that's why we did it. Finally, actually, it was interesting how serendipity plays into all of this as well. It turns out that we met, um, we were trying to figure out, okay, how to finance this project as well, because there's only so much art uh, co-checking could do or mm-hmm. having a job at a lab cleaning glass would do. There's only so far that could take you. Yeah. And so we said, we probably need a publisher, but we don't know anybody. And it turned out that there was a UK publisher called 21st Century Entertainment. Mm-hmm. And they were the first publishers for Dice. Dice in Gothenburg, the PBA mm-hmm. Dice, started off by making pinball games. Mm-hmm. And so their first games were pinball dreams and pinball fantasies. And, and this UK company was a publisher for that. But they were like, well, we can't make a business on pinball alone. We need to do other types of games. And it turned out that there was a local the brother-in-law of the uh, owner of 21st Century was a Kodak executive who started their North American publishing as a side gig. Mm-hmm. And, and so he found us, or we found him. I actually don't know exactly how that happened. I think it was through a mutual introduction. And they signed us as publishers. But, uh, that was my senior year of high school. And then we brought the game out in 1996. It was called Synergist. Mm-hmm. It took us five years, five and a half years to make our first game. And it was actually, I, I look back on the work, I still have the piece art and all that stuff and, you know, all the d- different things that we did. And it's, it's sort of not bad for a student project, actually. Yeah. It's not, it's not great. Let me tell you, it's not, it's not an amazing piece of work, yeah. but it's not bad mm-hmm. uh, uh, when you're trying to figure things out. And so that sort of translated into, I mean, it wasn't a big financial success. It was a huge achievement for us mm-hmm. personally. But it translated to an, a, like a continuous line of thinking for us, which is that if we just kept at it and kept on sort of like just really peeling back in the, the onion in it, it became, it became a bit of a metaphor mm-hmm. throughout our careers, both for me and my brother, that this could be the thing that we worked on. Mm-hmm. This, is, this could be the thing that we really created because all the conventional jobs, all the things that were within the structure and the bounds of what a career should be, mm-hmm. they would always be there. They'll always sort of be there. Right. But what you can create for yourself, well, you only have certain opportunities mm-hmm. to where you could take that swing. And if you could take it successively, like meaning one sets you up for the next, mm-hmm. you can have a really unique journey of your own. And it doesn't have to be one that has, you know, and, and that's sort of a metaphor for, I think, for anybody listening. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to fit into one mold. Not yeah. everybody has to be Elon Musk or 
uh, Peter Thiel or whoever, right? Yeah. We don't have to buy into these fantasy heroes in a way. They had their own journeys. Right. But if, just if you're willing to take that swing and keep building on it, uh, it works out. So that's how we started. That's how we started. And you know, there's so many details to the in-betweens. Thematically, it was sort of that approach that we took to almost everything that we did subsequently up till today. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to jump in there, right? So, you know, you made the comment, this was the early 90s when you started out, right? Mm -hmm. And so the gaming industry yep. looked nothing like it does today. So one, you know, just if you could dive into a little bit more detail, what did the gaming industry actually look like back then? And then what mm -hmm. gave you conviction to take this leap, right? Like you're literally a high school mm -hmm. student. I think most people, you know, when they're in high school, their first job might be, you know, something like working at the supermarket or like delivering newspapers or something like that so what gave you the confidence to like jump in and actually do this and were was your family supportive of this big leap you were about to take well that's a great question chris now i'd say there's a couple of different things one is the industry structure was very different mm -hmm. you know the way it looked at that time in some ways was really refreshing in other ways had very little training wheels or support mm -hmm. or anything like that so a lot of the development was focused in certain clusters you know, if you're looking for companies at scale, there would be companies like Sierra Online, Access Software. Sierra Online was uh, Northern California. Access mm -hmm. Software was in Utah. And Microsoft had a bit of a game business focused around Flight Simulator mm -hmm. and a few others. There's a small cluster in Boston area as well that was developing that still has a legacy today. Austin, I think, was quite small, but Origin had its start out there. Origin, which became part of EA. Yeah. Uh, had it start with Richard Garriott and so forth. So there were, it was actually, you know, if you wanted to buy a game, you'd go to Electronics Boutique and it was enough to support specialty retail stores mm -hmm. and others, you know, at malls. So it was a sort of a budding area. I think mostly focused around California and the United States. Canada was very small at the time. There would be small outposts here and there. Mm -hmm. UK had, uh, had had a long tradition of video game development at that time. And so you'd see a lot of the UK companies doing well as well. Many of those companies are not around mm -hmm. anymore. I think they didn't quite scale as much as the American companies did, you know, at the time. There was a sense, though, that because there was a lack of structure, anybody could do it. You're right. It was very much a cottage industry. Mm -hmm. So unlike today, where I think you still have the sense that anybody could do it because there's so many different parts that you can innovate in. And so many ways you could get into games mm -hmm. and so many tools to support that and so many different, not only macro ecosystems, but micro ecosystems for mm -hmm. you to be able to plug into, whether it's enabling technology or content or what have you. Then it was a sense of the actual overall system facilitated just anybody that had the gumption to mm -hmm. get in and do it. I, I had a paper, paper route, <laughs> you know, and, I, and it kind of sucked because, you know, the way that worked was I would deliver the newspaper to my neighborhood and I would get paid based on what I collected. Mm -hmm. And there's so many people that would subscribe to the local uh, Democrat and Chronicle that wouldn't pay their dues. They wouldn't <laughs> answer the doorbell. They wouldn't, they, they would shortchange me. And then the local distributor would be like, hey, look, you're supposed to produce $10 this week. You have $8, mm -hmm. you know, and then you get the leftovers as a, <laughs> as a paper up point. So it was amazing how adults are willing to stiff a teenager <laughs> right. with a paper rod. I mean, it's like, you know, who are you, who are you robbing from? You're not robbing <laughs> from the paper company. You're robbing from this little kid. Right. And I was like, that's a, it's kind of a, a real raw deal, I think, you know, mm -hmm. from a paper rod standpoint. So that wasn't great. Mm -hmm. But fundamentally, you know, what, what got us going was that we had a great mentor 
said, go do it. Mm -hmm. And there's a couple of important things about that. There weren't a whole, there was not a, any much of any consideration to here are all the reasons you could fail. Mm -hmm. Here are all the reasons it's not a good idea. Here are all the reasons it doesn't fit in. It was all about, hey, this is cool and you can do it. And so then it was really only up to your drive and your persistence, you know, your, your gumption to be able to go for it. And I think it's actually a good formula for anybody just starting out. Mm -hmm. If you stack up all the reasons why something will fail, well, that could make you really good as an actuarial like as an insurance <laughs> company. Yeah. But it's a terrible formula for an entrepreneur because typically you take risks every day in business or in starting a business, running a business. And then your job is to go to work on those risks, mm -hmm. go to work on those risks to, uh, to beat the risks. And that's how you deliver better returns. That's how you get out of the predictable and get into the new. And in a way, that's sort of how it played out, though I didn't have any of the language that I just mm -hmm. gave you back then. <laughs> and, you know, my, my parents are physicians. And so they were actually, they're foreign medical graduates. Mm -hmm. And they had to, the reason why we were in Rochester was that they were doing their residency in Rochester at the mm -hmm. time in their 50s. And they were just away all the time. They mm -hmm. were all constantly on their shifts both of them at the same time. And so they were glad that we weren't kind of getting into trouble and we, we were working on this project, I think, more than anything else. Mm -hmm. So they were pretty supportive in that sense. And, you know, I, I loved school. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a problem or anything mm -hmm. like that, but this is what I really spent a lot of my time doing, you know, outside of anything related to school and sports and stuff like that. I just spent a ton of time, you know, on this because it was just so, it, it was amazing what you could do by yourself if you just, uh, you know, applied yourself to it. So I think that that's, that's really what kept me going on this. And, and you know, and I, and I always had a partner, you know, my brother and a, right. a couple of our buddies in high school, we kind of just really supported each other through it. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And then, you know, Vicarious Visions is, it became a quite successful studio, right? So I, you know, I've always been a, a gamer since I was a young kid. And so mm -hmm. just out of curiosity, mm -hmm. I went back and looked at how many, vicarious visions games i actually played as a kid and mm -hmm. there was something like 20 games from vicarious visions that i had played right and under vicarious visions mm -hmm. you know there are games like tony hawk's pro skater two and three which are considered among mm -hmm. the best games of all time you know there's a skylanders games you know a few guitar hero games there's a number of, of games that most folks listening will be familiar with so i'm just curious what mm -hmm. were some of your favorite games released under vicarious visions Oh, I think, you know, there, there, there are a few, mm -hmm. but some of the ones that I really remember, actually, it's funny because I played this recently, mm -hmm. our CFO at Villain Studios, she was with us at uh, Vicarious mm -hmm. as well. She was, as, as many of us do uh, over time, we kind of tried to declutter mm -hmm. and she got her, had her old GBA games, mm -hmm. Game Boy Advance games, yeah. and, and uh, gave me the cartridge for uh, Spider-Man's Mysterious Menace. Nice. My own copy is just the archive copy now in the unopened box. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> I wasn't able to play it. And I said, I played it. And I was like, this is actually one of the critical moments where I think we got, uh, it was a side-scrolling Spider-Man game, mm -hmm. but we really got combat connection down. Mm -hmm. So where audio, animation, freeze frame, right. all of those things come together, the kind of the visual read of the enemy, the prompting, having different classes of enemies with different timings, your three-stage boss fight, which mm -hmm. is still, you know, a classic archetype, yeah. you know, today, all of those came together in, you know, what was relatively simple structure. And so, you know, that, that really stood out to me. Love that one. Another one, I think the other one, I would say totally different generation. Mm -hmm. Skylander Swap Force was really fun for me as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, both were, 
you know, every game development, we made over a hundred of like Paris during our time there, mm-hmm. has its own story and its own challenges and journey and, you know, that kind of thing. The Swap Force was really interesting because it was our first fully, fully hardware and software dependent product mm-hmm. where we had to innovate on the play pattern on the tactile side, uh, the play with the hands, in addition to, you know, level up what, what it meant to be a Skyliners game, you know, what it meant to be an action RPG for kids. Mm-hmm. And, and it really started with a notion of creating your own, but within a framework, character mm-hmm. framework for Swap Force. But what would make the hardware, the physical side, we made these prototypes of, you know, multi-part Skylanders that would click together. We had phono jacks that clicked together. We had other ways of getting electrical contact because we needed to make sure that the RFID chips would be able to communicate to all the parts. Mm-hmm. If you know what you're doing with your hands or, or we would be able to read what you're being able to do with your hands translated into the actual game side. And uh, when I took my daughter, my older daughter, it was six at that time mm-hmm. and it's 16 now and with our friends at the museum of natural history in new york mm-hmm. and they started playing with his neodymium magnets and they just had them in the gift shop and it's amazing to see how magnets are just so fun to interact with <laughs> just keep clicking them on off on off and like, it's it's like one of those simplest hard of course, mm-hmm. when I was a kid, I would also play with magnets and I would be like, mm-hmm. what is this fascinating thing? I don't know. How does this work? Magic? And so I said, okay, well, let's try that, neodymium magnets. And it turned out it was a, another peel back the onion kind of situation of it's mm-hmm. actually really hard to actually transmit electrical current through an EMF because you have different types of induction currents that form from the base of different parts of a Skyliner. And so we were able to do that. And actually, we came up with a really novel solution you know, on the toy side, but it was all in aid of a simple clickety-click play pattern. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's, it wasn't because we were looking to make amazing technology or try to make something complex because we, uh, we, we really got a thrill out of complex electronics. It was if you were to deliver the type of tactile experience that would make a simple form of mixing and matching fun to play and rewarding mm-hmm. in the moment, it was with these types of magnets that could be small enough, and powerful enough, and all, we could array them in a manner where it automatically twists and orients your character in the right way. and doesn't create a Frankenstein, mm-hmm. and it sort of looks like you made something amazing. That's what it enabled us to do. Now, on the software side, it was about saying, okay, well, how do we take this you know, mixing and matching play pattern and make it an effective reinforcing learning model for kids? Where all of that terminology fades away, and it's just a super fun experience where... You know, the youngest of children, three or four years old, could really easily memorize 256 combinations of toys, mm-hmm. but then put them together with abilities and situational puzzles and combat encounters and, you know, all of those sorts of things in this adventure. And, uh, you know, the team was able to pull it off. Mm-hmm. It was it was pretty, it was quite the challenge production, but I think we made a pretty good game at the end of that. And so that, that was really, you know, a lot of these games stick out to me, not only for the creative result at the end but the journey that you're on the journey you're on with mm-hmm. the team so these are also the reasons why i remember them yeah so actually just sort of following up on that right like this skylanders was so sort of innovative at the time you know and i think after i think it was shortly after that nintendo introduced amiibo which was pretty similar and then i think there were a couple other mm-hmm. sort of like toys to life games but obviously this was like mm-hmm. brand new right 
And at Vicarious Visions, mm-hmm. you know, you worked on a few Guitar Hero games. Obviously, you know, that was a pretty innovative concept at the time. You know, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater, you know, that was like a brand new genre. And just throughout your career, you know, a number of the games that you've worked on have been quite innovative. And so I'm just curious, is this something that sort of, you know, is just intrinsic to you, this this sort of drive to create these brand new game concepts? I would say that the we've had good enjoyment making all kinds of games, mm-hmm. but the best enjoyment comes from when you can actually take the type of creative risk mm-hmm. and get out of your comfort zone to make something different and simple and universal. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to do. Most game cycles, most game franchises, they actually innovate through complexity, mm-hmm. not by and, and layering, not necessarily by simplicity. It's also the case that there's a lot of risk, like a lot of enterprise risk mm-hmm. in trying to really get out of your comfort zone because you actually don't know if customers will resonate with the experience as well. Now, in all the ones that you named, I mean, customers did resonate, right? Mm-hmm. They became big games and, and we remember them today. But for every one of those, you have those that are, that are like, that was a really good game, but you know... Remember the Dreamcast games, uh, Space Channel 5, mm-hmm. Seaman, <laughs> they just all kind of go into the weird category. Right. So, you know, somebody thought that there were amazing experiences <laughs> and, and made it part of the launch lineup for Dreamcast. Before. Yeah. I don't know, done something to Dreamcast ultimately, but, you know, back mm-hmm. in the day. But they were done because they were really quite innovative in place. So there's a lot of risk in doing that. Mm-hmm. So I think that the business thrill for me comes from that, but the mm-hmm. actual creative thrill also comes, you know, from that, mm-hmm. from sort of stepping out of our comfort zone and doing that. So that's that's really where we've tried to push, you know, on a consistent basis, but it is hard to do it. It's not where I think most of, you know, if we look at our collective body of game developers throughout the world, it's not where most of us put our effort. And it's probably for good reason, because if, mm-hmm. all, of us, if all of us took that bark across the ocean and hoping to find an island, probably you know, the human population wouldn't be, would be probably a tenth of its size or something like that, right? <laughs> probably, we just mostly, a good thing for people. And we'd probably have a lot more uh, games in the weird category. A lot more games in the weird category as well, mm-hmm. yeah. So I want to come back to innovation, but first, you know, last piece on Vicarious Visions, right? So mm-hmm. obviously at some point you sold it to Activision. So I'm just curious, mm-hmm. what motivated that decision to sell? You know, mm-hmm. at what point did you decide, hey, it's time to, you know, join forces with a larger company rather than continue to run it independently? It's kind of interesting because we, we started it without a particular motivation to sell or anything mm-hmm. like that. We, we sold in 2005. So now it's been 17 years since we sold it. I was in my mid-20s, mid to late 20s at the time. We built a really great business and a great creative team, and we were taking a lot of pride in the work that we were doing mm-hmm. you know, by Keras. But there was a bunch of industry shifts going on at the time. And essentially, distribution was dominated by retail packaged goods. Mm-hmm. And what that meant was that because you had a single source of distribution with these big box stores really dominating, mm-hmm. publishers started consolidating quite a bit. So... We saw fewer and fewer publishers out there. And it meant as an indie studio working really as a developer with publishing relationships, you had two choices, either become a publisher Mm -hmm. and then develop those retail channels yourself or become vertically integrated. And then there was a third category as well, which still said, okay, well, you have to become much larger, but do 
do a lot more projects. Mm -hmm. And so they're all like independently viable or individually viable strategies. Mm -hmm. For us though, we asked, okay, well, what do we really want to do? And it was the notion of, we wanted to really make sure that, oh, another phenomenon was happening as well, which is of course, continues to happen. Computation resources on game systems goes up Mm -hmm. over time. And so what it takes to make quality full production games also goes up. We didn't have the indie scene with small scope games mm-hmm. and you know multiple price points. It was either your, your premium product or your value product. Or right. product. It wasn't like you have a $10 indie darling you know, mm-hmm. at the time. It, didn't, it wasn't really that type of industry at the time. And so you know, given that, we said, actually, it, it sort of makes sense. One of the viable strategies would be to be able to be part of a publisher and say, okay, we, we would have a customer of one against their strategy, but we'd be able to take on much bigger projects then. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't have to maintain an internal diversity of customers to be you know, a stable competitive entity. In other words, if you're an indie company with a single publisher, you don't have independence. Right. Uh, they dictate your terms you mm-hmm. know, typically, which is still true today, you know, whether or not. You know, individuals would like to acknowledge that's sort of the case, right? Yeah. If you have one customer, customer owns you right. without owning you. And then we said, okay, well, well, look, I mean, we don't, we're not compelled to sell Activision. We'd been working with them for five years mm-hmm. at the time. Our first product with them was a Spider-Man Game Boy Color game. And every project was actually really quite success, uh, quite a good success with them. We had 5 million unit sellers with them. They really valued quality and gave us a space to deliver it. They had abandoned their internal studio model in the late 90s, or actually probably around 2000. Um, they downsized it either in 1999 or 2000 mm-hmm. and really went to an external model and then started buying. I think Raven Studios was uh, the first studio that they acquired. Mm-hmm. And they bought it saying, look, we don't need a central organization. We need these studios to be independent and successful at what they do because that's what makes them successful today. And so they were genuinely pursuing an independent studio model where that was quite unusual. We've met Brian Kelly and Bobby Kodak a few years earlier, mm-hmm. and we stayed in touch with them. And at that time, we were considering this different strategic alternative. So this could be quite viable because one thing we've noticed with them through all kinds of different changes in the business because you know, over a five, six year span, and the industry, our industry keeps reinventing mm-hmm. and it continues to do so. They were the most consistent. The business deals were the most even-handed, and we had the best overall relationship with them. Where, you know, whenever things came up, we never sweated the small stuff. We focused on, you know, positive outcomes and that kind of thing. We said, okay, this could be possible. And then we then, then we entered into talks, and then we we made a sale for them. And then we that that was actually quite a constructive relationship. Even though for me as an entrepreneur, it was a huge adjustment being inside a larger firm than mm-hmm. than running it. Uh, with my brother. So it was a big adjustment for us. But we continued there for 11 years because it really worked, mm-hmm. you know, until 2016 where we left start uh, Valen Studios. So that, that, was, that, that was sort of the reasoning that we kind of moved, uh, sold to Activision. And then we continued to be there as senior leaders in there, in their structure there as well. And then, so moving on to Valen Studios, right? So Mm-hmm. What actually motivated the decision to to sort of move on from Activision and start your own studio mm-hmm. again? Well, I think, you know, some of the motivation for us to start again, you know, is based on some of the stuff that we've already talked about, which mm-hmm. is where we got most of our fulfillment was when we really stepped out of our comfort zone 
mm-hmm. and went into an area that had both technical as well as market uncertainty. Like basically something new, creative, fundamental that has a potential for creating a category, but we don't know if there's a market there yet. Right. And as Activision's business evolved, they went from a broad portfolio of bets to a narrow one. Mm-hmm. It was uh, increasingly franchise driven. As a result of that, the independent studio model also faded away, mm-hmm. where it was more of a central studio organization with multiple locations. The studios did have personalities, but they were much more consolidated in their business practices and that kind of thing. So it essentially became a really great, I mean, Vicarious continues to be, actually no longer called Vicarious, it's called Blizzard Albany, mm-hmm. continues to be a strong studio, but it was not, it wouldn't have been, a, it wasn't a fit for us anymore. It wasn't mm-hmm. a fit for me and my brother. And so we had to kind of ask ourselves, hey, hey, you know, I think we're probably out of sync with what's right for both the studio as well as for the company, for Activision, mm-hmm. you know? And so let's, let's, you know, I was turning 40 at the time and we said, okay, well, let's start something new. Let's get out. And if we think of ourselves as entrepreneurs, we need to be entrepreneurs. Let's mm-hmm. get out and take our own risks, you know, put our skin in the game, take our financial risks, take our creative risks and see what we can do. So we set out to do that with Valen Studios. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, you definitely took risks and, you know, you, you, you continued to stick with sort of this innovation, right? And so, you know, first starting with Mario Kart Live Home Circuit, right? This is a game that is pretty much unlike any other game that is out there. And so Nintendo, you know, I think for, for folks who might be listening, you don't know, you know, they're, they're pretty notoriously particular about who they, they work with, right? Externally. So what was the process like of actually working with them? And, you know, what gave you the conviction that this game that was so significantly different from everything that was out there would work out, right? And and, and also, mm-hmm. if you want to just, like, describe, you know, sort of what this game is. Mm-hmm. So Mario Kart Live Home Circuit is a mixed reality racing game. What mm-hmm. does that really mean? It's, it's actually an RC car with a camera system and a computing platform mm-hmm. on, on the RC car that allows you to play through a Nintendo Switch or first-person RC experience. And so you're looking through the vantage point of the actual RC car, which is mm-hmm. the physical form is like a Mario Kart with Mario in the cockpit. And there's also a Luigi Kart with a Luigi in the cockpit as well. Mm-hmm. And we're able to do, you know, through the Wi-Fi connection, the Wi-Fi Direct connection, we're able to do low latency video. And we do computer vision self-driving and a whole bunch of other technical layers to be able to give you Mario Kart, the Mario Kart racing experience in your living room Mm -hmm. or anywhere, any, anywhere in your play space. And so you put these kind of gate markers around, which are basically visual anchors that give stability to the mixed reality, you know, rendering. And you first create your own track, any kind of creative track that you can make. And then we set you against either up to four people that give you to play four humans that you could do in multiplayer mm-hmm. in that kind of local social environment or against AI. And it turns out we were solving some very fundamental problems with mixed reality, as well as driving mm-hmm. and computer vision at the same time. You know, the folks in the Mercedes R&D group called us up, you know, after the game release and said, hey, you guys, you want to chat? Because we've been working <laughs> on this for 10 years and there's some problems here that we're really curious about how you solve. So that's what the game is. But, you know, back to Nintendo, I would say the secret is there is no secret. What they really value as a company is creativity and craftsmanship. Mm-hmm. And you can see that in everything that they do. And they really appreciate when other companies really take that to heart. Mm-hmm. So the PowerPoint, 
with the deck on why this is fun or a logical explanation mm -hmm. as to why these systems should work, none of that really matters. Mm -hmm. In fact, all of that is relevant in how you solve the problem. But what really matters is, can you go that extra 110% to create a crafted experience that's truly unique? In fact, over the years, we've worked with Nintendo. We've been on virtually every launch since 2000 of their hardware systems. And there used to be a quote in the Nintendo office in Redmond. And it's a simplest, it's a very simple statement, make something unique. Mm -hmm. And so it's a company that prides itself on that. It's also the case that they have a studio organization that is really very excellent at making games for the platform. They have a lot of third parties that make games for them as well, or games on their platform, you mm -hmm. know, for them as well, that are, you know, all the big companies and they have some truly excellent indies working on them as well. But it's that value of creativity and craftsmanship, the values of being singularly focused on that as the leader to commercial success, as opposed to, hey, that's kind of nice, but if we can have a commercial success anyway, we'll do it. And so I think it was the values compatibility, but then it was also the proof in the play that brought us close together. Mm -hmm. And then after Mario Kart Live, you know, you made this game, Not Good City. And obviously, you know, I've, I've talked to you a lot about you know, my personal passion for this game. And, mm -hmm. you know, my podcast, I don't just like, you know, say this about every every game or anything like that of my guests, you know, but Knockout City mm -hmm. like truly was, you know, one of my favorite games. I was, I was literally playing it like with some of the best players in the world, like some of the top streamers. Um, I just awesome. absolutely loved it. You know, it's such a refreshing, like new concept. Right. And again, mm -hmm. this ties back to sort of your, you know, kind of career long commitment to innovation. This was a, a sort of, you, you know, had gameplay that was completely different from anything else that was out there. So I'd just love to hear a bit more about the story of Knockout City. Mm -hmm. So Knockout City, actually, the journey started a little earlier than Mario Kart Live. You know, and, and both of them followed a similar pattern, of course, a very, very different games, mm -hmm. which is we, you know, we put these, we had these small teams, like really small, like Mario Kart Live started off with a team of three. And uh, it wasn't called Mario Kart Live. It was called Project Car, mm -hmm. you know? And what, what we were trying to do is we were observing some changes in the landscape for, there's a lot of activity in 2016 to 2017 around virtual reality, a lot of changes to mechanical systems, robotics, CV libraries, public CV libraries were being used for fun and creative things at the time. And they're all like technologies looking for interesting applications, but mostly in tech demo territory. Mm -hmm. The, on the VR side, there was a ton of activity, but not a lot of activity in augmented reality. We said, well, look, I mean, long-term, that's really where it's at. I mean, VR has its own future, but a world where we can make, uh, where we have a mixed reality, digital and physical, and makes the, make the interactions digital and physical, that really puts a lot of humanity back in, you know, the way we look at play. Why don't we get, get further and further away from human connection, the kind of the value of play, I think, decreases. And so... Anyway, that's a bit philosophical spiel, mm -hmm. but fundamentally, that's where we started with Mario Kart Live and then just started building stuff. And so in that case, that one, we really got an insight because one of our people strapped a FPV camera on a high-speed RC car and then sent a stream to drone UHF drone goggles and said, mm -hmm. hey, you know, and then we had this kind of empty building lot behind our office, raced it around and we're like, that's really fun. <laughs> But there's a real problem because you can't do anything really gamey with it unless you make that 
video signal digital because digital signal is much, much slower than uh, analog. And so it fundamentally, you know, that transition from UHF to uh, like Wi-Fi is why most FPV experiences are completely unplayable mm-hmm. with RC. So we're not the first people to do FPV on RC, but it may be one of the few that's actually playable mm-hmm. because of the low latency stuff that we had to do with that. But that was the beginning of the insight into that. On Knockout City, it was more like, hey, we saw a lot of activity around esports. Overwatch mm-hmm. League had just been announced and it started. People were looking at metal events at the Olympics, at the Asian Games, but there's a real problem because you have the careers going, Korea's going at it in a shooting game. Mm-hmm. Not really the type of thing that you want. In that situation, a lot of the revenue systems coming out of esports were based on sponsorships. Mm-hmm. Not all brands affiliate with violent games. And fundamentally, we're big fans of shooters, but there's no need for another shooter, honestly. Right. <laughs> right, fundamentally, right. <laughs> a lot of good shooters, a lot of good shooter teams, there's no need. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, well, what's a different way of looking at that? Was like, what about with a ball, you know, an action game with a ball? And we're like, well, wait a second, if we do that, then it actually changes the play pattern tremendously mm-hmm. because you can catch it and throw right. it and pass it and your interaction with the team is different. So we said, okay, well, let's start working on that and seeing what's fun about that. And it was actually it's quite fascinating with that. We had so many failed experiments of that because you start mm-hmm. with, we started with a shooter paradigm, but everything you think sort of works on a shooter doesn't work in a, in a game of catching and throwing. Right. In a shooter, you have maps where you have perches and hiding spots and cover and all kinds of stuff like that, where you're almost like you want to pull apart from your enemy. In fact, when you get close to your enemy, you're dead. Mm-hmm. In this game, we're trying to push you together, mm-hmm. bring you closer and closer together and make meaningful choices on which angle you engage because it's about the face-off. And so just a change in the mechanic there changes everything about the play pattern, which is something you would have discovered, right? When you're playing with that. Right. That's a whole set of layers to expose in a competitive game. So we said, all right, okay, that's the fun cerebrally. Can we actually make it work? And probably the prototyping process for Mario Kart Live before we knew we had something really fun was about six months long mm-hmm. before and that's when we were able to show it to anybody outside of Elm Studios. It was about 18 months for Knockout City. So 2017 through mid-2018, like the E3 of 2018 for Knockout City. By the time we, it was kind of a litmus test. And I think some of our friends at Nintendo put us onto this. It was so much we learned from them, mm-hmm. by the way, as craftsmen. Even after making games for decades, you realize that looking through somebody else's eyes on how they make great creative work was like a mind-bending, mind-opening experience. Mm-hmm. It was really fascinating. Instead, just focus on what makes it really special. And it's about the face-off. And it's about, like, if can you put the controller down after you're done with it? Is it a mm-hmm. nice demo where you're like, okay, I'm ready to see something else? Or do you want to keep playing? And that was important. That was an important insight. So we, like, kept on working it until that was the case. And that's what we knew. We had something really worthwhile. And then we started, we said, okay, well, let's go to E3, E3 2018. Let's show it. Now Now we're ready. Now we think we have something good. Mm-hmm. Let's show it to people. And if nobody else agrees with us that this is good. <laughs> then maybe, that's, maybe, we're, <laughs> maybe that's some good information for right, us. Right. And that was going to be sort of the do or die moment for us mm-hmm. to say, do we continue on this? Do we do something else? And it turned out, you know, we had meetings with lots of different groups, you know, at the time. And EA emerged as, you know, amazing partner for us to work with. And mm-hmm. so we wound up signing a deal with EA on our EA partners and the EA Originals label for it. 
but everybody had a great time with it and, so, mm-hmm. okay, or, and, and couldn't stop playing importantly in some cases a return for rematches and stuff like that and mm-hmm. said okay now we've got a play pattern we can build on and then you know you made the comment that you know we we might not need another shooter game out there right and and i know you know mm-hmm. it's, it's somewhat sarcastic right but the reality is you know the shooter market is is quite developed and we're definitely going to see more shooters out there, right? Just because it's a very mm-hmm. proven concept, right? And so every mm-hmm. once in a while, you know, you, you'll see a Mario Kart Live home circuit, you'll see a Knockout City, you know, you'll see a multiverses, just like something that's sort of like fresh and gets a number of folks to, uh, to start gaming together. Mm-hmm. So I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on, do you think innovation in the form of just like, brand new game concepts or brand new play patterns is slowing in the industry, right? We've seen a number of sort of, you know, Battle Royale clones. You know, we've seen a number of, Mm -hmm. you know, recently these Fall Guys clones. So just curious to hear your thoughts on that. You know, I think there's a kind of strategic and business way of looking at it. And then Mm -hmm. there's a creative way of looking at it too. There's nothing abnormal about our industry, about Mm -hmm. these other ones. I mean, you have Every industry has its established genres, mm-hmm. like established franchises, really. I mean, genre is hard to say because in established categories, you have two or three players that get the dominant share of earnings and the rest are sort of get get squat, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Yeah, that's true in healthcare. It's true in, you know, our industry. It's, it's kind of true in toothpaste, honestly. Mm-hmm. So you can have giant franchises. You, then you have niche products that are serving they have a focus strategy to serve specific type of you know specific local audiences or local groups of audiences so like subgenres or specialty niches and that kind of thing they'll never be quite as large as the big franchises mm-hmm. in beer that would be microbreweries mm-hmm. in our industry that would be like escape from tarkov or something mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. right but they're small market size but you know really good stable audience and profitable products mm-hmm. you know type of thing and so you have an ecosystem like that and so for, from a commercial debt standpoint, you'd say, well, what do I actually need? And I think every independent business needs some kind of stable franchise to pay the bills day in, day out, mm-hmm. while other ones are exploratory. Now you have companies that really err, err, err on the side of, let me just go with core franchises because in the short term, that's how you can maximize enterprise value. You have the lowest failure rates there and the best earnings expansion you know, there as well. Mm-hmm. So if you're setting up to sell your company, you kind of go towards all the, you know, the franchise motivation. You, you have your staples that you built, just muck those staples and make them as big as possible. Mm-hmm. But for long-term st- sustainability, either you have to have an acquisition program to bring up the rising stars or you have to invent them yourselves. And sometimes mm-hmm. the organic invention can be tough. Right. I think every business needs to have that, which is why we see more and more shooters, right? Because people mm-hmm. are like, oh, what am I going to make in my franchise? <laughs> And maybe I need a shooter. Maybe I need a boy battle royale. Right. But that place is obviously carnage, right? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, one thing we were told in 2018, even though we see more battle royales today, I mean, probably maybe mobile is still the last frontier on Bible battle royale yeah. places. But in 2018, it's like, I'm so glad you, you showed us Knockout City and not <laughs> battle royale. Right. There are some of these things that launch that have like 10 players showing up for a 100 mm-hmm. player match. It's yeah. like, you know, it's, it's just not enough. Right. People go to where the big experiences are, mm-hmm. where the established franchises are. So then there's a creative lens that, you know, that, that at least in our decision-making that we put on, which is, well, if there's a lot of risk in any enterprise anyway, why not take the ones that matter to you the most? 
which is for, for me and my brother, it's doing something meaningful from a creative standpoint. Mm-hmm. So starting an independent business, like, all right, we need to create a franchise, but doing a knockoff is not really a great strategy or establishing a crowded market is not a great strategy. Why don't we take, why don't we set it up where we can take creative risks sequentially and then in areas that look like they're big enough that if we build a position in there, we can, it's very ownable. That mm-hmm. kind of type of consumer or consumer persona is a very ownable per, uh, persona. And we can use those to build our franchises. And then that would be the fuel to be able to do more experimentation. That's really our DNA. And so that's the strategy that we pursued. Those are the meaningful risks to us. We found that there are a lot of like-minded creative people that wanted to do the same thing, which means then you could build a robust team around it and robust studio around it that that can be quite scalable over time. Right. And then going back to Knockout City, you know, initially you released it as a sort of premium title, right? So effectively pay to play, right? Or pay to enter. But in recent years, we've seen sort of an increasing shift to free to play. And, you know, recently you guys actually made Knockout City free to play. So just curious to hear like sort of what the thinking was on that, I guess, initial release and then the transition. Uh, That's a great question. You know, we signed, I think when we created the prototypes for Knockout City, the, the playable prototype for Knockout City in 2018, it became quickly apparent to us that to make that kind of game, we probably couldn't do it on our own. Mm-hmm. We had to really get a publishing partner to be able to help finance this and get it out to market. We also were a pretty small team at the time. We were about 30 people. And we thought that, hey, we needed to, one, get a publishing partner to be able to build out the game that we needed to. We also didn't have the publishing capabilities in mm-hmm. to be able to do it as well. Um, and so we... I talked to a variety of partners. Some were partners that would do a free-to-play launch. Others, like EA and EA partners, were more interested in pursuing premium business models or mid-price premium business models, right. which for the competitive category of like MP-only shooters mm-hmm. or MP sort of action games was pretty well established at the time. You know, mm-hmm. Rocket League was mid-price premium. Overwatch was mid-price premium. There's a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. You know, Fall Guys was mid-price premium. But by the time we released in 2021, that had shifted. Pretty much everybody had gone free to play. So we right. had a shift in the competitive space. And so, you know, from a business structure standpoint, EA was still positioned to say, okay, well, we should make this a, a price premium title. Mm-hmm. That's what they're set up to do. Operating a free to play live services game with the economic pattern of a free to play game is just so, so different. The mm-hmm. investment thesis is very different, you know, as well. It can be attractive, but it requires a very different viewpoint in terms of how much to invest post launch before you start seeing real returns mm-hmm. and those sorts of things that that couldn't work in their portfolio. It was a really constructive dialogue with them though. So we launched a premium. It had a really good success around launch, but fundamentally it was not sustainable as a premium title. Right. And I think a lot of that was because it's an MP game that's very, very team-based. So mm-hmm. if you have any inhibition from your friends to come over and mm-hmm. play it, because eventually they'd have to pay 20 bucks or mm-hmm. you know whatever their conversion price was going to be. Mm-hmm then you're not going to form your teams. You're going right. to continue to play what you already play. And so taking that barrier away, even though we had free trials and stuff like that, from an optical standpoint, free to play was going to be crucial mm-hmm. for, for the game itself to shine. So we came to that realization and then switched it over and we worked it out with EA to do so. So, and by then, you know, we were in a spot to be able to do self-publishing. We had mm-hmm. the capital capability to do a, you know, those sorts of things as well. So that's sort of how that came about. 
But really, I would have to say, you know, overall, I was very impressed with EA and how we were able to navigate that mm-hmm. because it, it was a sort of deal that they have never done, which is, it was kind of an interesting curiosity, but there was no system that existed at EA to actually take a deal that's signed as a publishing deal mm-hmm. with them and then making no longer a publishing deal and <laughs> having the studio take it over. It didn't exist, especially for this type of product. And so we, we constructed all the systems to do it. And they were super supportive of that and a very structured approach to getting that done. It was mm-hmm. cool. And then my last Knockout City question is just as a fan, right? So again, I, I actually mm-hmm. really, really love Knockout City. So what's next mm-hmm. for Knockout City? What does the future look like? Mm-hmm. So uh, future for Knockout City. I mean, Knockout City is a team-based action game mm-hmm. where the emphasis is really on team member to team member interdependency. And so it's like you work, unlike other team-based games, which is sort of like you're you're dependent, but you're kind of, uh, you have parallel functions mm-hmm. with skill trees. Here, it's really based on passing and catching and throwing and working as a team mm-hmm. to outdo the other. So it really has that kind of team sport feel, which is you know one of the unique play feels that the game has. It's really doubling down into all the systems that make that shine and make it the best possible team-based play that's unique that you can have. So we have a lot of things going on there with features that enable that, make that better, make it a really fun social place to be. We have a great season plan as well. New mechanics, new levels, new types of customizations. We'll be bringing in licensing partners as well that offer really pop and personality, but within the Knockout City universe and that kind of thing. So that's coming soon, Mm -hmm. you know, as well. So we have a lot of activity planned for that. So it's really with the motivation of saying, how do we keep it fresh? How do we keep it new? Even for players like you, mm-hmm. how do we say, how do we change up the meta a little bit? How do we right. make it so mastery means something new? And how do we make it fun to talk about as well? Awesome. And then, so I know outside of Knockout City, you guys are working on a number of things as well. I don't know mm-hmm. if there's anything you can talk about about the future of Velen. Yeah, you know, I mean, like we're interested in new play patterns, what mm-hmm. got us started and one of the actual biggest things for us, <laughs> one of the overarching notions were we don't want to be just known as a one game company. Right. We don't want to be known as the Skyliners people or the Guitar Hero people or the mm-hmm. Tony Hawk people, but as the people that could keep inventing. And so we knew that if we had a couple of successes, we could just do more of that. Mm-hmm. But that's not, that doesn't really define a discovery focused you know, company. What defines it is doing making those kind of breakthrough games that and doing it over and over again. So people would have a sense of what are we going to do next? And you know, we're taking steps in that direction. Mm-hmm. So hopefully, you know, the some of the things you'd be like, well, that's a cool variant on something that we've seen. And so, so that's really refreshing. So mm-hmm. hopefully that's what we're doing season to season on Knockout City, for example. But then there's another aspect of it which is really fostering play patterns that you haven't seen before. And hopefully we'll be bringing those out over the next couple of years. Now, it's hard to put all of those on a timeline because right, Discovery right. does have timeline uncertainty associated mm-hmm. with it uh, as well. So that's our goal. That's what, that's what we hope to deliver, but nothing to announce yet, sure. but not too far in the future. Awesome. Well, excited to hear when you do ultimately announce some of these projects. We just want to shift gears and sort of as a concluding question, right? So, you know, you've been doing this for decades and have had quite a bit of success. But just as a personal question to you, Guha, what else do you want to accomplish going forward? 
Well, I think that, you know, for, for me, sort of the fountain of youth is to keep on discovering, mm -hmm. to keep on learning how to do that. Because what that represents with a team and a, and a group of people uh, creating some new experiences that really could have resonance on a large scale, you know, for, for audiences everywhere, that means something different over time. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's not one way to do it, one formula to do it, but it's that capacity to reinvent, even how to discover. And that's what I hope to be, keep doing from here, here on out. That's what that really means to me. And I did feel towards the end of my time in Activision, I felt a few different things. I felt that Activision is a great company, <laughs> which I know is not a popular opinion among the press these days, but really I have a lot of heart for all the people that I work with over there. I felt it was a great company, but it was not the place. I, I was feeling like I was doing more of what I'd already done. Mm -hmm. And I needed for my own sense of renewal, the ability to go back and do things new and different and put myself on a sharp learning curve and get mm -hmm. myself out of my comfort zone. And this, this is a, a way that I've been able to find to do that. That's what I'd like to keep doing. Awesome. Well, I, I look forward to following your journey going forward. You know, I'll definitely continue to be a fan uh, and, and a, a player of your games. But I just want to say okay. thanks for taking the time. Great hearing your journey. Hey, thanks a lot, Chris. I really appreciate you asking as well.